2: to Voices That Glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T.
1: From the Berkshires to the sound. From wherever you live in MLB America, this is Inside the Parker. You give us 22 minutes and we'll give you the scoop on Major League Baseball. Now. Here's Baseball Hall of Fame voter number 70,
2: Rob Parker. Welcome into a very special edition of Inside the Parker. I'm your host, Rob Parker. And man, we get a chance to have an extended talk, an interview with Daryl Strawberry, the former Slugger who played for the Mets, the Yankees, the Dodgers, and the Giants. We'll do that, plus all our other elements as well. Here we go with Inside the Parker, a very special edition.
1: Here comes the big interview.
3: Listen and learn.
2: Oh, it's so good. Now let's welcome him into the podcast. He's an eight time All Star, won three World Series in his Major League career, National League Rookie of the Year, all that and more. Most people know him as Straw, but Daryl Strawberry joins us here on Inside the Parker. What's up, Straw?
0: How are you? I'm good, Rob. How you doing, my brother?
2: Doing great. Not as good as you though, because <laughs> uh recently the Mets announced that uh you will have your number uh retired, number 18 uh with the Mets and there'll be a ceremony during the 2024 season. Just tell me about what that means to you and how excited you are about it.
0: Well, first of all, it's such a great honor. Uh, to be able to get that news and waiting for a very long time and, and hoping, you know, seeing other players grow up and realizing that, you know, you played there and yourself and, and you did some great things there. And you just hope that the things that you accomplished there are not forgotten. Um, so, and obviously with the new ownership and Steve and Alex, you know, that have come in and taken over, I think they have embraced uh, the organization and what the organization means. Um, I think it's important when you realize that you have had great players that have played and came in uh, before they have taken over team, has done some things and left their mark on what it is to be over there to play in Queens and all the great Met fans, you know, that were able to watch you play. And, you know, I think about, I reflect back on so many things, Rob. You know, you t- I reflect back on the fact that, you know, starting in, um, rookie ball and having a, a lot of people that's had a great impact, you know, like Chuck Hiller, my first manager, and then going to Lynchburg, Virginia and, and Jackson, Mississippi, and uh, Gene Dusan being my manager, and I had to go through those periods of development and then playing for David Johnson at AAA, then I would come eventually play for Davy Johnson in the major leagues, and he would be my manager, and all those different people, Jim Fry, who had a big impact on me, my rookie season, and i go on to win Rookie of the Year, and and Bill Robinson coming in and being my hitting coach and helping me grow and mature and, and becoming the dominating player I was uh, because he constantly stayed on me about how good I was. So a lot of people uh, play a major part in you getting there. And I always want to remember that and be thankful for that and also be thankful for the fans because the fans played a big part of making me believe that you can be a great player, but you got to play here in New York. Nobody's going to give it to you. You got to go get it.
2: How special is it to see where you, you are in your life? If you were if we were to dial back of, I don't know, twenty, thirty, twenty years ago or whatever, just you know, with all that you went through being suspended, the substance abuse, all the other stuff that, you know, is a part of your life story, but where you are today as a man and a person, does that make it even even more rewarding?
0: It really does. You know, I'm glad we're Where I'm at today, I'm glad what what I went through because I learned a lot of lessons in that and the journey of life. And and I'm so thankful for guys like Gary Carter and Mookie Wilson, you know, guys who were on my team when I was a young player. And they were a great example of how a man can live, no no matter what, being a baseball player. But they were a lot older than I was, a lot wiser than I was, but I knew it was real. You know, when you think about it and you see guys like that, and uh, I appreciate them so much because they had a... A profound effect on me and I think that's why I'm standing as the man I am today because the uniform really doesn't define you it just makes you a ball player an athlete you know and I think a lot of guys get consumed with that and never could take the uniform off and become the man and um as I sit here today you know I'm a totally different person and I love people and I care for people and I, I want to help many as people as I can before my life is over here and I, I think that's what's what's important that's what stands out in my life more than anything is is the things that I get to do today.
2: Our guest is Daryl Strawberry, who, of course, won a World Series with the Mets in 1986, then moved on to the Bronx and won two World Series with the Yankees. Uh, I mean, you know, uh, people in New York have viewed his career, seen him play, all that, all the contributions he's made on the field as well. Eight-time All-Star, you know, did it 1984 to 1991, which was incredible. That was the domination, you know, to make the All-Star with all the great players, to be able to make the All-Star team eight years like that. I mean, that that was another thing. And, Sean, let me take you back to being with the Mets and playing in New York. You know, New York is a Yankee town. They got all the championships. They're one of the greatest franchises in the history of the this country. Forget about New York, right? But during right. your years with you and, and Dwight Gooden, when you guys came up to the Mets, the Mets used to steal the back page. It was about the Mets. The Mets were the dominant team during your era. Do you remember it like that?
0: Of course. It was It was definitely lights out when we came to town and, and started that run, you know, after my 83 Rookie of the Year and, and Doc coming, um, 84 Rookie of the Year. Um, we stopped that Rookie of the Year going to the Dodgers. You know, I did in 83 and Doc stopped it in 84. So you had two young African-American playing in New York City and Queens at the highest level. Um, And the expectations were big for me when I came up. Uh, I think they kind of slid Doc in, even though he was 19 when he came in. Uh, Davey Johnson kind of slid him in. They didn't put the heat on him and the pressure on him. They said, well, let's see what he can do at the major league level. So he would go on to be one of the uh, greatest younger pitchers that you would ever see in, in major league baseball. and. And the way he controlled uh, just everything—not just the game, but also the fans coming into the ballpark—I'd never seen anything like it when I when he was in '85, when he was um, Cy Young, when he won 24 games and. You know, I had a 1.3-something ERA, 1.53, I
2: think. 1.53, 24-4, <laughs> anybody, and you had a front-row seat. But anybody who watched him that year, he reminded me of just the number, like Bob Gibson's domination. I mean, that was the most unbelievable pitching year I ever saw.
0: It's the most – I've never seen anybody even come close to that. I mean, because I got a, you know – like you said, a front seat of plan underneath it, and I thought it was pretty boring playing outfield because Doc never gave you any action. <laughs> I mean, he just, he just completely dominated Major League hitters. You know, I just remember guys, you know, Major League teams coming to the ballpark and being in the lineup, starting players, and they realized Doc was pitching at night and you would see players come out of the lineup and say, something happened to my shoulder. They was in the lineup, but they just <laughs> didn't want that three punch out, you know. It's like, like from this young kid, and how could this kid be that good, and you know, I, and I, I just realized that we had something special when that team started to come together and myself being a young player, and then we go on to like the '86 year uh, and, and win the World Series. Yeah, of course, the Yankees, we just dominated the, the headlines. And I, and I think that frustrated George, you know, the boss of the Yankees, that the Mets have came in town and they started to rule and reign over the town and, and take over the papers and uh, the back pages and it was all about the match and what we were doing and, and we were headed in the right direction. And then we ended up getting Carter who came over in the trade and it just really took us to the next level because uh, we had Hernandez come over in the trade from St. Louis and then we got Ray Knight and then we got Carter and blended in with the younger players. And it just allowed us uh, to step to the next level and believe in ourselves as a team that we can win.
2: I talked to Cecil Fielder, who of course played uh, on the Yankees and won a world series. And he played in Detroit a long time. He played in Toronto, and he said to me, "There's nothing better than winning in New York." Do you feel the same way? Like when and you did it three times, but like that's that's what he always says to me. He says, "I I feel like blessed that I won a World Series in New York, I, I.
0: bro." There's nothing greater than playing in New York and winning. You know, and a lot of players say they want to come there and play. I tell them, be careful what you ask for because you just might get it. And you have to deal with the pressure of playing in New York, and the fans there—they know sports. You know they're not dumb to sports. You know you can't fool them, and they know if you—you know—a sucker and you can't play there, they're gonna run you out of town. And right, uh, yeah. <laughs> And so, it's nothing like it. You know when you win there, um, it, it is the best. It's forever. Uh, The town will always celebrate you because you have become a winner in the biggest city, on the biggest stage. And when you can do that and perform on that stage, uh, people are always crazy about you. They don't care what anyone else has to say. They know that you have played here, and they know that you have taken some heat playing here, and you you understood uh, what it was going to be to be able to play here, but you got it done. And that's what New York fans are all about uh, New York is a challenge because when you look at New York City, everybody's got everybody's got some type of struggle there and everybody's moving fast. so uh, everybody's trying to uh, make it work. you know, you know they're, they're grinding the people in New York City. but uh, I tell you they're very special people. Uh, I, I always say I gotta thank God for giving me the opportunity uh, to be raised up and playing in a place like New York City
2: and 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 then the flip side is you went to the Bronx, Which tradition there had big home runs, big hits, won the World Series. George Steinbrenner gave you an opportunity there, and uh, Yankee fans love you too. It was it was not it's not often, you know, it wasn't often that a a a guy was identified as a Met goes to the Yankees, you know, and is is a fan favorite as well.
0: Well, I think what the Yankee fans like about people who. had challenges in their life and don't quit and don't give up. I think that's why I was accepted so, so much over there because they're New Yorkers and they realized that this guy here, he persevered, man. He, he don't give up, man. He, he, he was great over there in Queens and yeah, he went through some trials and tribulations in his life, but we accept him because one thing that they realized that if the boss wanted me over there, the boss was going to get me over there, George, everybody else was, you know, their prediction was he can't play. We don't really want him. He don't fit. You know, la, la, la. And uh, George made everybody be quiet. And he brought me over into the Bronx. And when I got there and came over there after that 95 year, I played with him. And then I ended up going to St. Paul. And George sent um, Gene Michaels, who was who was Stick, down to see me play down there. And Stick came and went back to DeVos and told him, this guy got tremendous bass speed. And he, he can play the outfield. He can play. And I think that's why the trigger was pulled. And George says, well, I'm getting him back some kind of way. And I guess he kept it quiet to himself. And he pulled the trigger when it was time. And, and then I got to say this, because when I came there, I didn't have to play. But you think about it. Joe Torre saw me and Joe Torrey saw what I was capable of doing. And he made sure that I was going to be playing. He, he didn't care what anybody else was thinking and saying, you know, la di dada. di you know, media was saying he couldn't play the LP, he can't catch up with major league pitching. And once Joe put me in the lineup and saw that that was not true, that was far from true, he goes, I need this guy in my lineup. So I, I, I credit Joe Torrey for, for standing up and having faith in me too.
2: I give Joe credit as well. In 96, when you guys won the World Series – And remember, you were down 0-2. You got obliterated in the first two games in the Bronx, went to Atlanta, and Joe did something most managers don't do, Straw, which is he sat down Tino Martinez, uh, Wade Boggs, and Paul O'Neal and inserted you, Cecil Fielder, and Charlie Hayes, the Soul Patrol, and you guys won the next (laughs) three games in, in Atlanta. Am I right?
0: That was a Soul Patrol team. He put it out there. Uh, regardless of what anybody was going to think, I know Atlanta was looking, you know, when we were like, when they had an announcers on the line, and they were looking down the line and they they probably were saying, these are all black players, you know, it's just one white player, which Joe Girardi was the catcher, and Andy Patti was the pitcher. And they, I kind of, they kind of probably felt, we're probably in a little bit of trouble because these boys here could play. They, they, they've been playing Major League Baseball a long time, and they know how to play the game, and. I don't think they're going to be, you know, tight or anything. And we wasn't. We, you know, we were very loose. I mean, we sat and we were patient. We played the first two games and we lost at home. And and when he broke that lineup out, it, it, it just it, – it said something. It said something to, you know, the nation. Um we're the Yankees, but we're going to play these players here, and they all of color, and we believe that they could get the job done for us, and and, and we did. You know, it, it was a complete team effort, but he had to make a switch because there was a struggle there in the first two games. So he had to do something different. He had to sweep on it, and, I'm, you know, I think the other players, they they accepted it, you know, because they knew they were struggling at the time, right. and they knew that, you know, this was a switch for the better because we did have some players on our team – that can't play that have experience plan be a big difference, Rob, if we didn't have that experience, but all the guys had the experience to be able to play and go out there and get it done.
2: Last thing I want to share with people who might be listening to the podcast, who don't know the history between me and you. And and I want to say this because I, I was in college when you came up to the big leagues in 1983 and I had written a letter to Jay Horowitz, was the PR guy at the time, and, and said, I wanted to interview you for the college newspaper. And, and that was 1983, and I went to Shea State. They They gave me credentials. I went to Shea Stadium. My best friend, Fred uh, Royster, had the camera, and we went down there. We sat in the dugout, and I interviewed you, and I have a black and white picture. It wasn't, it wasn't even color. It was black and white. <laughs> and 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 all these years later you were the first athlete pro athlete I ever interviewed and I was in college and that that was back in 1983 so we're talking about now uh 40 years now right is that 1983 to 2023 I've known you for 40 years you were the first pro athlete I ever interviewed and I just want to say thank you and thanks for that opportunity you know, thanks for treating me nicely back then and giving me the opportunity. And it had an impression on me. Uh, So I I just want to say at this point, thank you.
0: Well, you're welcome, man. I mean, I thought it was a really good thing to even actually sit down with a black reporter, you know, after having so many uh, other reporters, you know, that were all white in your face all the time and wanted to ask you, you know, the hard questions and stuff like that, but just to be able to sit down and, you know, break bread with a brother and just talk about things, and was, you know, we just we became friends over that, and and, and that's important, you know. I think that's important in, in the game of sports. You know, it's not just because of our color. Well, it's it's only so many of us, you know, that right. that, that that are around, you know. And when you see one, you know, it's refreshing. Um, and, and I thought it was very refreshing, and and of course, you were young, you know. <laughs> it was crazy. It's so crazy. I know. I was.
2: I think I might have been nineteen. I was I was young because yeah, I was, was nineteen young. years old. Yeah, crazy. And then, here and we then are. You go
0: back. To, and then you go back to see some of those uh, pictures of, of, of over the past year. And then you go back to see some like me, you, and Eric at the New Year's oh yeah e party. Me and you and Ed, to- that's right. <laughs> Which was also so,
2: another great picture. Great times when we used to have those New Year's Eve parties in Los Angeles. I used to fly out. Yeah, uh, man, this is great. I can't wait uh, for the. Uh, Uh, induction ceremony at uh, City Field and uh, this coming uh, 2024 season, man, I will be there front and center just like I was 40 years ago when you first came up to the big league. So it's only fitting. And I just want you to know in that black and white picture, my guns are about the same size as yours back
0: then. (laughs) I know. Yeah, we were thin, wasn't we? I was paper paper thin too. You were thin. We were thin
2: back then, no doubt about it.
0: Yeah, I was paper thin, but most people didn't know I. Not only I could hit the long ball, but I could fly. I used to be able to run like a deer, so it was good to be paper thin like that. You know, just blow by like the wind.
2: No doubt. His name is Daryl Strawberry. Thanks for joining us here on Inside the Parker.
1: It's time for the Pocket Protector Central, the analytic numbers you need to know. Well, maybe.
2: Anthony Masterson is his name. BS analytics is his game. What do you got for me, Anthony?
4: Last week, I mentioned the NL MVP race coming down to the wire, but now we can shift our focus to the men on the mound. The NL Cy Young is turning into a three-horse race, all with their own interesting cases. Let's break it down. Starting with the odds-on favorite at this point, the Padres' Blake Snell. Snell would become just the seventh pitcher in MLB history to win the Cy Young in both leagues after his spell in 2018 with Tampa and just the second lefty ever joining Randy Johnson. His 2.50 ERA leads the league, as well as his 191 opponent average. But Snell also leads the circuit in walks by a wide margin. Only two pitchers have ever won the Cy while leading in walks, and none since early win in 1959. The Braves' Spencer Strider is a strikeout maven who, by September 1st, was tied for the league lead in wins and leading the circuit in strikeouts and WHIP. In fact, Strider's 38% strikeout rate would be the highest by an NL starter in history and the second highest in a full season ever, only behind Garrett Cole's 2019 with Houston. The final standout is the Cubs' Justin Steele, who finds himself in the top three in the league in wins, ERA, and home run rate, all while throwing just a fastball and a slider. He throws his fastball, which sits at just 92 miles an hour, 65% of the time, highest among any starter. But only the Phillies' Zach Wheeler gets more chases from his fastball than Steel. We've got three more weeks to see who has their eye on the side. And that ball is! It was a big week in the big leagues.
2: Who's a? Who's a? I don't believe it!
1: My oh my! Is it foul or is it fair? And now. From MLBbro.com, here's
2: JR Gamble. JR, is it foul or fair to say that Jose Altuve's recent home run outburst is the most explosive offensive display of the 2023 season?
3: Fair. It's a fair ball. Jose Altuve hasn't had the best season, but then again, October is coming and future Hall of Famers and multiple world champions like Altuve, who's also battled aging and injuries this year, when they are locked in, you tend to get prolific streaks like this one that only great players provide. You can't be fluky and mashed like Altuve and have a tear like this. It's just a credit to his professionalism. As he said, he approached every at bat the same this year, regardless of whether or not he was one for 30 or on a tear like he is now, his recent wood whacking exhibition. So, Mookie Betts had an historical month of August, and that can't be denied, becoming just the third person in history to hit at least 450 with 50 hits and 10 homers. But check this out Altuve. Had homered in four consecutive at-bats, going back to Houston's 13-6 win in the series opener on Monday. That ended with the ground out in the fifth inning. He tied the MLB record with five homers in a two-game span. And is the first player since 1961 to homer in four consecutive innings, according to the Elias Sports Bureau and MLB.com. That's Reggie Jackson stuff. So, there's been some great offensive feats this season. But as far as power surges go, the diminutive Altuve takes the cake. Go figure. Turn money into more money. Now it's time for
1: Betting on the Bases with Dave Gascot. Love that
0: money. Love that money.
1: Rob what's up man I am geared up for a frantic finish as we get our way towards the end of the regular season now officially in the month of September there's a bunch of teams I'm looking at over the weekend so this is what I got first off Toronto Blue Jays are at home against the lowly Kansas City Royals I will take Toronto Friday night meanwhile different scene in Atlanta Braves and Pirates Atlanta probably the favorite in the National League they took apart the Dodgers over the weekend Probably the Braves and the Orioles, at least when you're looking at things when it's all said and done. But I'll take Atlanta Friday night as well. And the other one, Rangers and Athletics. Texas right now keeping toes with the Astros and also the Seattle Mariners. They need to win this ballgame because you just don't know who's going to be on the outside looking in. And if you want to obviously get a little crazy, why not do a three-team parlay? Rangers, Braves, Blue Jays. That's it, Rob. Take it away.
2: In the words of New York TV legend, the late Bill Jorgensen, thanking you for your time this time until next time. Rob Parker, out. He can't get it. This could be an inside to Parker. See you next week. Same bad
1: time, same bad station.